0: Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and wellness. We're so glad you're tuning in. This week, we are once again without Michael, who was busy working on his dissertation, so we decided to take a pause in our normal programming and do something a little different. In this episode, Evan got on the call with Lindsay to talk about the world of therapists, her background as a counselor and as an ordained minister, and also some things the general public might not know about the profession at large. Here to discuss all this are Evan DeYoung and Lindsay Geist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone podcast, the podcast that explores faith and well-being and lots of other things in between. I am Evan DeYoung, and this week I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Lindsay Geist. Lindsay, you want to say hey? Hey, everybody. It's good to be here with you. You will notice that we did a little trickery on our last episode, and Lindsay and I recorded it, and we promised you that Michael would be back next episode. Unfortunately, there's this thing called a doctorate, that apparently takes a little bit of energy and effort. I think he had 1,600 edits to make before weekend going into this week or something like that. He did like 50-something interviews and had to edit them all down. It was crazy. So Michael will be joining us soon, but if you're listening to this, it's probably all past, but go ahead and just say a little prayer for Michael and his Uh, dissertation in his doctoral defense. I know he's really excited about it, and I'm sure he's looking forward to filling us all in on all the details. Or maybe not. Maybe he'll be done talking about it by (laughs) now. (laughs) by next week. That's what I would be. Once you give me the doctorate, just don't don't ask me about it anymore. Uh, So this week, we are going to take the opportunity for Lindsay and I to chat a little bit around the mental health profession. We're going to learn a little bit more about Lindsay, her calling, what it's like to be a mental health professional, and just kind of give some general context, peel back the curtain a little bit on the rapidly evolving profession that is mental health, and especially how it relates to faith. So Lindsay, For those who maybe haven't heard some of our other episodes, tell us a little bit about who you are, what your qualifications are, et cetera, et cetera.
1: It's been a while since we dug into giving those official bios uh, as we were launching in at the beginning of the episodes. So I am a United Methodist minister, and I am also a licensed clinical social worker. Um, So you'll often see that written as an LCSW, uh in kind of slang terminology, people will say, "Oh, I'm a therapist or I'm a counselor. All of that is just common lingo of for the fancy term of my specific credentialing of an LCSW. Licensed as a social worker, I have been trained in all clinical counseling, so all individual counseling and therapy, uh, group counseling, Um, and I've had a background and experience in a lot of social service organizations. Mm -hmm. So working lots with individuals that have been homeless or food insecure or, um, needing access to free and community mental health services or medical services, um, worked with a lot of individuals that, uh, have needed support, needed support like, um, food stamps or, um, any sort of healthcare support, um, a lot of individuals without insurance, um, kind of broad spectrum. So my particular experience as a licensed clinical social worker as an LCSW, uh, in, includes both all clinical counseling and those, social service intersections.
0: Okay. So you are a licensed clinical social worker. What other paths are available to be considered a therapist or a counselor? Because if you just say, hey, everyone, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, I would never think that you were a therapist.
1: And that's why you'll often hear me just introduce myself as, oh, I'm a licensed therapist or a licensed counselor. So the other two acronyms that you'll see a lot of times are an LMFT, so a licensed marriage and family therapist, okay, or you'll see an LPC, a licensed professional counselor. What that means is that we are all trained uh, slightly specifically in um, different master's degrees, Um, but we all do pretty similar work. It's kind of how some of the classes are organized or some of the theories and models that you are taught of how people relate to one another.
0: Would a fair comparison be that all cardiologists are doctors, but all doctors aren't cardiologists?
1: Sure, yeah. I think that that's probably a good broad explanation. Um, Or even uh, all doctors, um, oncologists that are familiar with cancer, they might have unique specialties in working with different kinds of cancers.
0: Got it. So what made you choose licensed clinical social work? Cause your background in education, I know you started as a math major, right?
1: Yeah. We, we always love bringing that one up because it makes zero sense to my life now. Um, besides, you know, like counting the number of souls I'm saving, I guess, but, uh, that's That's a big thing in the church world, everyone, (laughs) everybody wants to
0: know. I I remember the first time I was at a professional meeting for ministry and so how many souls have you saved? And I was like, well, I think I have saved zero (laughs) ever and I don't think I'll save any myself for my entire life.
1: I know we just point a lot of people towards God and then the Holy Spirit does some pretty incredible work. Um, but yeah, like that's the only, that's the only thing I can think of that involves counting that I might still use that degree for. Um, but no, I, uh, God did some pretty crazy things in my life in college of just continuing to put me in places with people in really challenging moments. Um, and I kept being present with people in those moments um, and both close friends and uh, kind of further out acquaintances. And they were always moments that were have slightly traumatic for individuals or uh, really shook their lives and paradigms. And... Also, they wanted to talk about where God was and all of that. And so I then started wrestling with, okay, if I keep being present in these moments, what is God telling me Mm. about my future work and what God wants to use me for? And so I knew that uh, for me, I really wanted to be knowledgeable both in the counseling aspect. If I was going to sit with people in hard times, I wanted to know how to do that well, um, and really use therapeutic tools. Um, but our understanding of God is so complex and the lens that we see the world. And so I wanted to better understand theological language of how all that's intersected. So I started looking at degree programs across the country that uh were able to incorporate both together. And so I got two master's degrees that can normally be done, uh, on their own and are totally separate, but there's a few programs across the country that work on integrating both together. Um, and you actually take classes concurrently and see how the intersection works. And so that's what cool. I chose to do. Uh, cause God really called to the, me into that intersection. And then there was a program that offered me to study in that
0: intersection. Where did you do that program?
1: I went to Duke and UNC Chapel Hill. So two rival schools, um, which always really confuses people. Yeah. Um, they're only eight miles apart. If you're not familiar with the geography in that part of North Carolina, um, and they actually collaborate a lot academically. Um, they collaborate zero during basketball season. Um, and so you want to make sure you wear the right shade of blue on the right campus during basketball season. Um but <laughs> so <laughs> what did you do?
0: That, did you have one of those house divided bumper stickers and you just like no, put it around your neck or
1: yeah? So I mean while I was in school, I, I feel badly for, you know, like I paid them both money and have both of their degrees and value them both. I do put one degree on a shelf higher than another oh. degree, um, because of just my love of that, uh, that basketball
0: team. You heard it here first folks. Are you going to tell us or is that? A yeah, for no, day? I mean,
1: I, I just don't want anybody to be turned off and decide that they can no longer listen to me ever again because I've confessed, but, um, I'm a huge Duke basketball fan Okay, and, um, went to a majority of the games, um, camped out in grad school, uh, for tickets. And it was Unlike anything else, I'm convinced that being inside Cameron indoor during a Duke basketball game and feeling the excitement in your bones, like you can feel it inside your body. You can't hear everything. There's just, I mean, crowd noises like crazy. I'm hoping that someday when I get to heaven, it that was kind of a glimpse of how oh. overwhelming and incredible heaven will be someday.
0: I don't think I would have pegged as much weight on your live sports, specifically basketball fandom based off of our.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I mean like out of control, like I said, camped out every year that I could, um, went to, I mean probably at least half the games every season. Um, wanted to make sure, I mean the, the grad school student section at Duke is under both baskets You know, all the cheers, you know, I mean, I, yeah, you're
0: in, you're hooked.
1: I know I was rearranging some of my closet the other day and saw how many Duke basketball t-shirts I had. I was like, holy cow, this is more t-shirts than I have of anything else combined easily. (laughs) I mean, there had to have been 20 to 25 Duke basketball shirts. That's Yeah. Because you yeah.
0: wore 20 t-shirts at the same time. I would not advise wearing 20 t-shirts at the same time.
1: I mean, it worked during basketball season. You didn't have to do your laundry like every other night. Um, but in you the had real You enough world,
0: laundry for a season. So you had a <laughs> specific laundry basket for Duke basketball gear that you just did at I mean, the pretty end much. of the season. Yeah, pretty you could post-mortem on the season and figured it out. So when Mar- March Madness for you was just a very specific set of laundry.
1: Uh, yeah, it really was. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) That's perfect. So tell me about the faith component, because the licensed clinical social work, which we want to hear more about, is not inherently a faith-based program, and you combined a couple things in a unique way. How did that come about? Why incorporate the faith component with the counseling and the clinical social work component? Why was that important to you?
1: So I think that I've experienced over the years that our faith backgrounds and our faith beliefs really serve as a lens of how we look at the world. Um, And so if we're not talking about the lens from which we're viewing the world, uh, then it's really complicated to understand how we interpret events that are happening to us um, that we're involved with. And so I wanted to better understand the language of how we talk about uh, theology. When something traumatic happens, if we have a faith background where we believe something like um, God's hand is in everything and God knows every action that happens in the world and God plans it, well, that really impacts how I'm going to react to a trauma, if right. I believe that God has created every event. um, and, and I'm not saying that that's what I believe or don't believe. I'm just saying that's as an example of how our faith lens really helps us understand all of our events and our actions. And so I wanted to make sure that I had both to be able to help people unpack how interwoven, especially um, those that grew up in the church world, how interwoven those two things are Mm -hmm. and how we inherently believe a lot of things that influence our reactions, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. If we say things like everything happens for a reason, then we have to start unpacking, well, does that mean that this bad thing happened Because it was meant to or God needed it to happen, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which then often when I've asked people that in counseling sessions, they some people go, wait, what? I said, well, if we do the logic of how we just talked about it, then that's what our brain is implying to ourselves and how we're interpreting it. So I found it really helpful to have uh, both of those backgrounds, to have the dialogue together in social work school. You are right that it is not inherently a faith-based place. Um, It's not, it doesn't have to be an anti-faith place, um, but we're not talking about God in every single class. Yeah. Interestingly enough, because I was in this unique dual program, There was a cohort of us together that were getting the in the double master's program.
0: Oh, so now that's a special time.
1: So, we did talk a lot more in our social work classes at Carolina about faith than probably most people would in social work school,
0: right? Um,
1: because there was such a large cohort of us that were involved in dialoguing and unpacking all of this stuff. Um, and in and in counseling. You are not taught to ignore faith. If it is something that is integral to someone and it is something that is their strength and the way that they view the world, that should be incorporated into a counseling session if somebody requests it.
0: Mm.
1: And so counseling, anybody, any client is allowed to bring up their faith. The therapist just is not going to be the one that is inherently saying, okay, I need to know everything about your faith tradition. Mm -hmm. And so people have come to my practice in the past saying, okay, I knew that I wouldn't have to tell you everything from scratch about my church experience or my faith beliefs because I know that some of your training, you already know that. And so it's going to make us be able to move forward in some of our counseling that I don't feel like I have to catch you up on.
0: Right. Yeah, I don't have to spend four sessions worth of time explaining my faith elements to you. That context is huge. I do wonder if you noticed how you incorporated some order of operation into the faith identity piece. Uh, where you did structure and arrange things that were very much like, you have to understand that you're this before you do this. And then you can do this. I, I was going over the pair. I'm like, okay, parentheses, and then <laughs> multiplication and division. And then, right? It's, this is, I think the math major is still in there.
1: I'm, I'm still in there of trying to connect all that uh, cause and effect and proofing. I mean, I guess in some ways we're doing a lot of proofs again.
0: Listen, there's a lot of overlap between theology, philosophy, and math in structure, order, explanation. It's more scientific than I think we give it credit for.
1: Well, thanks for making me feel a little bit better like that uh, undergraduate degree wasn't totally worthless. (laughs) 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 I love it.
0: Tell me more about the cohort because it seems like there's something really special that happens in these unique moments in time, especially in education where you have people who are from different backgrounds who come together around really calling, right? Like major Mm -hmm. and calling do have some overlap. That seems like a really special time to have folks that are in that specialty because I imagine that your role could feel a little isolating in the broader church world because I can't think of a ton of folks that have the same credentialing and passions that you do. So what was it like to be in that cohort studying and living life with people who were all right there?
1: It was, it was really fantastic. And it's I'm valuing it even more as I look back on it and see where we've all ended up. So we all felt called to some sort of intersection between uh, engaging the understanding of theology and um, growing our own faith beliefs and being able to help other people articulate theirs and connect with God, as well as this uh, idea of social work where Again, we talked about how broad social work is. It can be anywhere from counseling to helping somebody apply for food stamps to most people hear social work and they immediately think defects of um, Child Protective Services. services, Um, And so that is included in there as well. Um, I've had friends that have worked at children's homes, have run uh, a homeless shelter. Uh, I first worked in... Uh, detox and mental health crisis work. Um, I've had individuals that have served as the outreach pastor at the church and done all the connections with outreach and social service ministries around town. Um, We all have done really different things with the degree. And so I think what I valued the most about the cohort was us all wrestling, what does it mean to sit in this intersection Yet this intersection is such a broad overlapping place that we all felt God calling us to different facets of it. Right. I mean, I think the coolest part, one of my favorite memories of the cohort. Um, and, and so there were about 15 of us in my year. Um, a lot of people. mm -hmm, It was one of the largest graduating classes. And, um, there, We also met uh, once a month of all of the years, of all the people that have overlapped. And so we, I got to know people that were above and below me in graduation and see how they all, uh, everything came together. But I think one of my favorite memories of this cohort was actually my preaching class in seminary. Because we had this pretty rigorous uh, schedule that when you're getting both degrees you don't get a lot of electives or wiggle room Mm -hmm. especially if you're going the ordination route and you knew you wanted to be ordained you had to take certain classes what What does that mean um so i knew that i wanted to be an ordained united methodist minister
0: difference between ordination and not what is explain that for
1: um so it makes me a pastor so um you have the official title of reverend, you have in the United Methodist Church, you go through years of um, sharing your call, then uh, going to school for your calling, then going before the board of ministry to uh, continue to describe your call and prove your theology that it is sound and that you understand how to engage in ministry. And then uh, the bishop lays hands on you and you you are invited into this group of individuals of clergy. And you then, I mean, the the biggest difference for people is that the title reverend is then bestowed upon you to signify being a pastor at that
0: moment. So I do not have the title reverend. So I work with the Methodist Church, but I am what's considered laity, so I don't have the same—I would never tell someone that I'm a pastor, because that is reserved for a specific group of highly vetted Accountable folks who do different things than I would do, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a critical distinction. And I think it's one of my favorite things about the Methodist Church is the level of accountability and oversight for a religious institution before they credential people. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize that when you have somebody who's a Methodist minister, you don't you don't they don't tell you that they had to have a psyche vow, and if they weren't healthy, those things were addressed. Because in faith communities, a lot of the time, the pastor is just. Sometimes they've been to seminary. Sometimes it's just the person who steps up. And I have really appreciated the accountability and credentialing that comes with the Methodist system. As I think cumbersome as all systems can be at times, uh, there is a, we, we get reminded there is an actual purpose and a reason for that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that was a helpful thing for us to probably parse out for people. Uh, as I was saying, one of my favorite memories in seminary was preaching class is that because we didn't have a lot of wiggle room in our schedule, a majority of my cohort all had to take preaching together. Um, So a lot of classes in seminary are, you know, 100 to 150 people in a room. And then um, you break off into your smaller precepts. And so we had a precept where we would preach to one another. um, And there were about 20 people in there. Well, I mean, we took up, probably 10 of those slots. And it was some of the most fascinating preaching I have ever heard. How so? Because everybody was coming at it with a lens of, um, with such a strong uh, community focused social work, uh, recognizing oppression um, lens that Just nuances in Bible stories that came out and stories that were uh, illustrations that were used in preaching were just so unique that I loved being with others that were really finding um, a really special voice, Um, especially because a lot of people in that intersection um, weren't necessarily feeling called to preach every single week in a church, right? Um,
0: but their communities the for the equipping, yeah,
1: right. And their communities and ministries that they were feeling called to was a very different group,
0: yeah. It seems like it would be a very action oriented group, mm-hmm. <laughs> they have plans and want to change systems and there, cause there's a shepherding element, but then social work, you're, you're inherently acknowledging that there is a social structure that needs work.
1: There's a lot of conversation about social justice and inequality and, um, how God views us all and our the divine image in us and how, if we all have that divine image in us, that we're reflecting the divine image, then how are we inherently valued? Um, it's just fascinating mm. conversation so, that we had even more so in that unique co- cohort.
0: So you feel like the individuals in the cohort are kind of uniquely positioned to address challenges in both community and communities of faith in a way that there's a broader understanding to make the connection. My question would be pastoring is a challenging, isolating, emotionally heavy Mm -hmm. occupation. Counseling and social work is an emotionally challenging and heavy occupation. Both have incredible opportunities and are highly relational Sounds like there's a lot of potential for isolation where people don't fully understand everything Mm -hmm. you do, exhaustion, maybe having a hard time being able to really share about what your day-to-day is. I feel like just like you have someone come to you for being a person of faith and also a a therapist— They're like, well, we can start from step four because you understand the faith component, right? It seems like you wouldn't have a lot of people who can start with you from step four. Whenever you want to talk to somebody about something, it seems like you would have to explain a lot about what you do. How has that impacted you now that you're out of the program? You're both practicing in your counseling practice and you're pastoring at the same time. I mean, how does that—is it what you expected
1: I mean, I don't even know what I fully expected. I think when I answered God's call on my life, like you really have to have a lot of courage and take a risk that I, I said yes to something God was calling me to that. I don't think I fully understood even at that moment.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me.
1: That I really felt called to this kind of large space that where something about mental health and the church were intersecting and wanting to help people of the church better talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's been an interesting, I mean, I guess I finished my graduate program 10 years ago.
0: Congratulations on your 10 year grad anniversary. Uh,
1: um, And so it's been an interesting, I mean, longer than that wrestling with identity because calling and our identity are so interwoven in our lives. And I think your question is one that really has me reflecting on my own identity is that I I feel like I can connect with my clergy colleagues and my identity is there, but my identity is also with my therapist colleagues. And at the same time, I don't fully fit in either group. So some days I feel totally connected to each group and some days I feel like I don't fit in either group. And I've been grateful that there's more and more people that I have met across the country now uh, with this unique skill set. Um, and so I've started creating time and space to talk to them more regularly, to make sure that I'm caring for myself in that way of, okay, who can I talk to that? might fully be in the work trenches and understand. Mm. But also there's a lot of times that I don't need somebody fully in those same trenches right? to understand um, that I'm utilizing maybe one part of my identity more than another. So there are days that I am seen and acting more as clergy only. And my therapist hat isn't utilized in the same way. And then there's days that I, I'm seen as a therapist and my clergy self isn't utilized in the same way.
0: Right. That sounds fun and tiring.
1: But isn't that true about all of us in our identities? Is that, I mean, when we have a lot of different groups of friends, um, or we have social groups from different part of our lives, like your work friends and your church friends versus your kickball friends. um, Some of them may feel like they have lots in common and some of them only really fit in one of those groups. And sometimes you feel totally connected to everybody. And sometimes you think they only really know one part of my identity and might only ever be able to know that one Mm -hmm. part of my identity.
0: So You have positioned yourself with some great perspective on a lot of challenges facing I'm just going to say everyone (laughs) in the next five to ten years if you would say that we as a faith society and faith groups have done a good job of taking some good next steps as far as connecting faith, mental health language around it. In the next five to 10 years, if we were there, what would that look like?
1: I think part of it is just changing the culture about how we talk about mental health. The church for so long talked about it in such a shameful way that um, if we were wrestling with poor mental health, um, or experiencing anxiety or depression. For so long, the church implied that we simply were not, didn't have a strong enough faith. If we prayed more, if we trusted God more, all of that would go away.
0: Yeah, just read a psalm.
1: Yeah. Um, and since then, the church has gotten better about dialoguing um, and saying, it's not your fault that mental health is and mental illness is really no different than physical illness and so we've started to make progress in the next five to ten years I hope that it's even more normalized that somebody can say oh in my episode of depression that I had last year here's what happened and here's a therapist that I went to that was really helpful um that, that we can just talk about it in common language without being ashamed anymore. Yeah. And again, some faith communities are really great at that and some are still growing in that. And I hope that we also have more counselors tied with churches that it's even super easily accessible
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that we're preaching from the pulpit all about how they're, is a lot of mental health in scripture and the way people right. talk and negative self-talk was very present. Um, and so I just hope that it becomes so normalized that we don't even notice it happening in some ways anymore because right. it is so integrated into our lives.
0: So what it, what advice and encouragement would you give for someone who wants to explore calling in this direction, both professionally, right? Obviously, if you want Mm -hmm. to do it, you could go to the program, right? That's that's Mm -hmm. the obvious step. Let's say that they have a degree in something else and they're not looking to go back to school, but they really want to make actionable change in their local community and their local church on this topic. What encouragement or advice would you give those folks?
1: I think there's a lot of training that you can do um, just around advocacy of Okay. are there does your group have support groups Um, or could you partner with a counseling center nearby to offer support groups for or group therapy? However, you want to phrase it for individuals. Um, Could you hold Bible studies around it? Um, So maybe some of that is education and reading out there. You can bring groups like NAMI in. n-a-n-a-m-i um they are the mental
0: health sorry i just nami (laughs) i just made a bad joke in my head i just imagined nami being the thing somebody's like hey do you want anything from McDonald's?" nami good like (laughs) i was thinking like nami don't worry about it anyways move on please continue talking about things of substance Oh,
1: goodness. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They have groups that meet um, that can help provide some education so that you can better support yourself, family members, friends. Um, You can also take mental health first aid. That has become incredibly popular now. It is sort of mental health 101 meets uh, crisis intervention like what mental health things need uh, some sort of crisis triage at the moment. (laughs) And a lot of people go, well, if I met somebody that was experiencing suicidal thoughts, what do I even do? And so that training would say, okay, here's the key questions to ask. And here's when you call 911, or here's when you um, might call other, you know, get them connected to a local crisis unit or a therapist. Um, so there's lots of education that you that somebody could take as a lay person without having to be clinically licensed. At the same time, I think that it is really helpful to know that you can be an advocate and an ally for individuals experiencing mental illness. And you also don't have to fix and save the day. You just need to know a therapist to call to connect the person to that's adequately trained to sit with the person in that. And so I I want people to know that you don't have to be all things to everybody, that you can know enough to be a presence there while still connecting to other resources that are licensed and trained to take kind of those final few steps with people.
0: I think that's great. That There's a reason there are professionals in different topics and subjects, and we should be willing to work with them and admit when things are to a point where it's helpful to have a professional and it's totally fine to not even have anything. You don't have to wait for a crisis to -hmm. work with a mental health professional.
1: Yeah. I think that's my favorite part about counseling is that so many people believe that it's when your whole life has fallen apart, but I mean, you go to a doctor for an annual physical or we're supposed to go (laughs) to the doctor for an annual physical as a preventative measure. And so counseling can also be the same way that it is a safe space to process what's happening in your life and be able to make sure that you have healthy coping mechanisms in place, coping skills in place so that if something challenging does come along Mm -hmm. you already have those skills and tools in place and so counseling can be for any ordinary day or in the extraordinary circumstances
0: yeah i think that's really great encouragement and advice as we move towards a future that we're Mm -hmm. all actively shaping and choosing. So as we kind of wrap up, I want to say thanks for your time and your thoughts and sharing your story a little bit. I I learned some things and we've been doing this for a year.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not often that you dig into uh, kind of the nuances and meat of everybody's job and how they even ended up there. So thanks for taking this time to unpack it all.
0: I love it. Okay, so here's, here's I'm going to put you on the spot. Here's your last challenge. As a Duke basketball fan, I need you to clarify some things for everyone, okay? Uh, so I'm going to say a name, and then I'm going to first name, and then I'm going to spell a last name, and I need you to tell everyone how that last name is pronounced, okay?
1: Okay, this is making me a little anxious already.
0: I. It's okay. We could cut it in post if it doesn't go well. <laughs> you have got this. All right, the head coach of duke basketball's name is mike and then i'm going to spell the last name and you get to tell everybody how to pronounce it okay his name is mike uh k-r-z-y-z-e-w-s-k-i now as a duke basketball fan why don't you tell me how that's pronounced
1: well a lot of people call him coach k
0: (laughs) i can see why
1: but Shoshevsky.
0: That's right, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's what should be on spelling bees. Shashevsky. Shusef, I can't even say it.
1: You. I mean, after four years, you spent a lot of time practicing it. That's
0: so. what I. That's what I thought. I figured maybe you could clear that up for everybody. So there you go, everyone. You learned a little bit about Lindsay. You learned a little bit about mental health, profession, and pastors. And you learned how to properly pronounce the name of the current head coach of Duke basketball, Mike Shashevsky. <laughs> And on that note, we're going to say thanks to Lindsay. Thanks to Justin Patton for producing this episode and doing all the music. We're looking forward to getting back together, our usual trio. Please pray for Michael and his family as he finishes up his dissertation based on intergroup contact theory. I'm sure we'll get to hear all about it. We'll probably have at least a series just on Michael's dissertation. Everybody's like, some people got really excited. (laughs) Yeah, some people got really excited some people said, I will make sure to skip. (laughs) But don't worry, we're already through it. So thanks everyone for listening. We're looking forward to seeing you next episode. Thanks again, Lindsay. Um, Bye-bye.